Well, good morning, family. And uh, good morning to all of you who are watching at home as well this morning. What a joy and a delight to be together today. And what a delight to have the blessing to be able to come and to open the Word of God. Let's go to the Lord and ask His blessing. Father, we are so grateful that You have given us Your Word, Your inspired, inerrant, infallible Word. We hear from You, our Creator, our God. Here in in Your Word, we meet You, we learn of You. As well, we learn the truth of ourselves. So may our hearts be open this morning, our minds attentive, our wills receptive to hear from You. May You speak to us. May we be those who don't just hear, but those who listen and who take Your Word and put it into practice in our life. So Father, may You guide the lips of this stammering preacher and the ears of all of us that what we hear is You this morning through Your Word. We do pray for our world. We pray for our nation. Pray for our leaders, Father, that they might come to know You as Savior. If they do not know You, that Father, that they might govern rightly. That they might govern godly. We pray for our land, that there might be revival in our land. The hearts of people will turn to You. We pray for so many in our land and so many in this world who have never heard the gospel of Jesus Christ. May we as your people be faithful to take the good news of Jesus to those who haven't heard. Father, in these years where there's so much turmoil, so much illness, so much unrest, that people might come to find you, the rock of refuge, our Creator, our Savior. It's in Jesus' name we ask these things. Amen. Well, if you would, take your Bibles and open to the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew chapter 6. We're continuing to study in Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. This has been an astonishing study for us, and it shouldn't surprise us. The folks who were listening in that day, the crowds on the mountainside, they were listening to Jesus at the end of the sermon we read. They were astonished at His teaching. Astonished at what, at the way He spoke, but also astonished at what He said. What He said, as we've found over these past weeks as we've been going through this message, is, is what He says really is shocking. Things that are shocking for us to hear of, of what we need to be as Jesus' disciples and what we need to do as His disciples. You see, this message is designed for us. The Sermon on the Mount is written to all of those who identify as followers, as disciples of Jesus. And this is critical information. We could call this Christianity 101. What is it to live as a, as a Christian? What is it to live as a follower of Jesus? And in today's passage, the subject is prayer. And we come in these verses before us this morning here in chapter 6 and verses 5 through 15. These 11 verses contain some of the most familiar and some of the most well-loved verses of all the Bible. At the same time, they're the verses which most of the church least understands. How we need these words this morning. The subject is prayer. And as we begin, I guess the first question I'd want to ask is, if, just think for a moment about yourself and your prayer life. And if you are going to this morning rate your prayer life on a scale of 1 to 10, with 1 means prayer life, and ten means I pray like the Apostle Paul. Okay? Where are you on a scale of one to ten? Are you a one? Are you a three, a four, a five, a ten? What if instead of you grading yourself, those of us who can put ourselves back into school mode, some of you are there, you're a student, you, you remember what it is, those of us who, who are long past that, 
when uh, the end of the quarter, the end of the semester came up and they gave those things back. I know kids today, you don't know this, but they used to give report cards that were actually cards. Okay, now I know they just show up in your email or whatever, but uh, they, they actually showed up on a, it was a card they handed you and it had on the bottom this place where your parents had to sign. Okay, take home. And that was a big day of dread for many of us. You know, what's it going to be? What are they going to give? And they pass them out and you get yours. <laughs> and, uh, well, what if instead of you grading yourself this morning, God was issuing a report card to you today. And he's giving, he's grading your prayer life. I wonder what it would be. There would be probably a little apprehension. How would God rate my prayer life? I have a feeling that most of us we probably wouldn't do so good. Well, good news. There is a report card coming. That's not the good news. The good news is that Jesus today is going to give us some important information that if we'll listen to Him, we will learn how to pray rightly so that when the report card comes, God says, you know, Harry, you are a good prayer. Would you like to know how to pray well? Jesus tells us this morning here in Matthew chapter 6, verses 5 through 15. This morning, he's going to give us four keys to praying rightly. Verse 5. And when you pray, and we're just going to stop right there. And when you pray. See, because as redundant as this may sound, as foolish as this may sound, as simple as this may sound, as unnecessary as this may sound, the first key to praying rightly is pray. We cannot pray rightly if we do not pray. Don't neglect prayer. Instead, make prayer a priority. And I say this this morning to us, to all of you watching at home, or all of you who watch this a year from now or five years from now. I say this because the reality is many of us simply do not. And I'm not saying this this morning as your judge. I'm saying this as a person who is sitting at the feet of Jesus with you, Saying, Jesus, I need to learn how to pray rightly. We all are students here, and we want to learn how to pray rightly. But many of us just have never gotten out of the starting block. We simply do not pray. Some Christians pray very seldom or almost never. The only time they pray is maybe, you know, their prayer life consists of, and this may be some of you, your entire prayer life is a little prayer before you eat your meals. Two or three times a day, you shoot up a little, you know, prayer. Thank you, God, for the food. You know, hopefully you don't do rub-a-dub-dub, thanks for the grub. You know, I hope that's not not how you pray, even if if your your only prayers are at mealtimes. But maybe if... So it's, we pray when, you know, we have to give thanks for meals and we maybe pray when we find ourselves in a jam. We find ourselves in trouble. Something's going wrong. Or maybe, as I say, we just put those two together. I'm reminded of a family that, that, uh, they were, everybody had gathered around the table and the sitting down, the food is starting to be served. And as soon as the, the food hit little Johnny's plate, he grabbed his fork and he began to eat. And his mother quickly was putting her hand on his hand trying to stop him. She says, Johnny! You don't eat yet. We haven't prayed. And Johnny says, don't have to. She said, no, Johnny, you know, we always pray before we eat in our house. And Johnny says, I know, but that's in our house. And we're at grandma's house. And she knows how to cook. (laughs) See, sometimes we think we only have to pray because we're in danger. There's a, there's a disaster about to happen. We laugh. But it's a reality for so many of us. 
if we, we, we think that prayer is only that thing that we do when it's an absolute necessity. That's, that's not the case here. Jesus assumes that we as his followers, that we are prayers. That we will follow his example as a prayer. That we'll be praying people. You see, Jesus made a priority out of prayer. He often got up very early to pray. We find Mark chapter 1 says, And rising very early in the morning, while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place. And there he prayed. Jesus made prayer a priority so much that he got up early while it was still dark and went out to pray. And I'd like to tell you this morning, as your pastor, I do that. I'd like to tell you that, but I don't. Most of you know me. I am not a morning person. <laughs> it would be a real sacrifice for me to do that. And, but there are times that ought to be enough of a priority for me to say I need to get up and pray early in the morning. Jesus did. For those of you who say, well, I do that every morning. You're one of those morning people. I say, well, fine for you, but you need this. Because Jesus not only sometimes got up early in the morning and went and prayed, sometimes he, went, he stayed up late. Sometimes he stayed up all night to pray. I can do that easier than get up early in the morning, by the way. In these days, he, Jesus, went out to the mountains to pray, and all night he continued in prayer to God. See? Jesus considered prayer enough of a priority, he sacrificed. Sometimes staying up late, sometimes staying up all night, sometimes getting up early to pray. Whatever it was, Jesus was setting an example for all of us, whether you're a night person or a morning person. Prayer was a priority. and Sometimes it's worth sacrifice. Often it is worth sacrifice. Jesus aimed to teach us as His followers that we ought to be faithful and we ought to be persistent in prayer. Luke chapter 18 says, And He, that's Jesus, told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. He told them the story of the, the, the parable of the, of the little widow lady who needed justice and there was a judge who simply wouldn't give justice and she just day and night hounded Him. Give me justice. And the point of the parable was that we ought to always pray and not lose heart, not give up. Pray, pray, pray. And so it is that as Jesus begins here to teach us about prayer, the first thing He says is, when you pray. He's just assuming that we are prayers there in verse 5. If we didn't get it, He says it again in verse 7. When you pray. And if we didn't get it in verse 5 or verse 7, we get down to verse 9 and Jesus says, pray like this. Okay, we get in the point. Jesus says prayer should be a priority. Jesus simply assumes that if we're going to follow in His footsteps, we're going to be prayers. And so it's not surprising that when Jesus left when the Holy Spirit came and the church was begun, there with that first group of the, of the apostles, and there on the day of Pentecost as the church began, and immediately, almost all, that same day, some 5,000 joined the church, and over the course of the next days and weeks, the church just continued to grow in huge numbers. That when we see the church in their infancy, we, what do we do as a church? <laughs> Four priorities, four things that dominated the church, things that the church was committed to do, that they were devoted to do. We find there in Acts chapter 2, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. They devoted themselves to learning the Word of God. And they devoted themselves to the, the fellowship, to gathering together, because we need each other. 
Christianity is not a solo thing. It is the family of God. And they devoted themselves to the breaking of bread, to worship, and to prayer. One of the four top things that the church knew, this is priority. This is what we are about. We are praying people. Jesus, in just a moment, when we get to verse 9, Jesus will remind us that in prayer, you and I have an open door to an audience with the sovereign God of the universe. I can't pick up the phone and get the mayor of Lake St. Louis on the line. I can't pick up the phone and get the governor of Missouri on the line. I can't pick up the phone and get the president of the United States on the line. I can't get the president or king or dictator of any country on the phone that I'm aware of, at least. But the sovereign God of the universe is waiting for me to call to him. And the same for you. For many of you, your own friends won't even answer your phone call. (laughs) But God will. Shouldn't that amaze us? And shouldn't that cause us to want to say, Wow, God, do you want to talk to me? And unlike most of our friends, after ten minutes, he doesn't go... (laughs) That astounds me. And yet, sadly, so many of us as Christians don't pray. Through prayer, we connect to the person of God. Through prayer, we connect to the purpose of God. Through prayer, we connect to the provision of God. And through prayer, we connect to the power of God. That's why the great evangelist Dwight Moody, a century ago, said, I'd rather be able to pray than to be a great preacher. Jesus Christ never taught His disciples to preach, but only how to pray. See, the power of ministry is not in the preacher. The power of ministry is in God. And we access that through prayer. If the chapel of the lake is ever going to make a difference in this world, it's not going to be through your preacher. It is going to be through the prayers of you, his people. We need to pray. Despite so many encouragements from Scripture for us to pray, many Christians spend so little time in prayer. And I think that prayerlessness is perhaps the greatest sin of the modern American church. It is certainly one of the greatest sins in my own life. I recall a few years ago, I was at a pastor's conference and John Piper was there speaking and he just kind of turned to us as pastors and a little bit tongue-in-cheek. He said, you know, he said, I believe that when we get to heaven and we stand before God, we're going to discover that the ultimate purpose of social media was to demonstrate and prove that we that our lack of prayer wasn't because of lack of time see we have plenty of time to play we have plenty of time to work we have plenty of time for sports We have plenty of time for music and theater and recreation and entertainment and plenty of time for social media, of all things. But we can't seem to find time to pray. So if we grasp nothing else and gain nothing else from the message this morning, I pray that it is simply the impetus, the motivation to take initiative starting today to make time, to make effort, 
to be intentional to pray more. To be people of prayer. Back to the text and to the second key. We just got, that's the longest point for the shortest word. <laughs> okay? Pray. Because I think it's our biggest need. Secondly, though, verse 5. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites. For they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. The second key to praying rightly is pray genuinely. Be genuine in prayer. Jesus says, don't be like the hypocrites. The Greek word for hypocrite, by the way, is the word to put on a mask. In that day and time, uh, when you'd go to the theater, the costumes weren't the big deal. The, the actors would wear masks. You've seen that. That has become the, the symbol of theater. In our day, it's just a symbol. And so the word hypocrite came to mean one who acts, one who pretends, one who puts on a face. And so a hypocrite pretends to be something while he's something else. He says one thing and does another. Jesus says, don't be like the hypocrites. And the hypocrites in Jesus' day were these religious people who just, uh, they loved to go out into the public place where they would be seen. A pious Jew would pray at least three times a day. There are three set times where if you were a good Jew, that you would stop and pray. Nine in the morning, noon, and three in the afternoon. So when the alarm goes off, when the, the trumpet sounds, when the, the call goes out, it's nine, you know, it's time to stop and pray. And so many Jews, of course, would go to the temple, or if you're not in Jerusalem, you'd go to a synagogue, to your local church, and there they would take time to pray. But the hypocrites would make sure that when it came time to go to the synagogue or to the temple, that they got a good spot. And the good spot was one where you can see everybody and everybody can see you. There you, you know, you raise your hands, you put your shawl on, you raise your hands, and you begin to pray in the most eloquent of voice, the most, you know, spiritual voice, the most eloquent words. And of course, if you weren't there or you, you know, just couldn't make it there, you just happened to be on the busiest street corner <laughs> or in the most prominent place in the shopping mall <laughs> or wherever. And then when the time was, you know, now it's just there again you are and people everywhere go, oh my, you know. Look at Bob. Isn't he spiritual? Oh my goodness. Nobody prays like him. Listen to that voice. Oh, you know. That's what Jesus says these people are doing. And just like the givers last week when he talked about the act of giving, they were hypocrites who were doing the act of giving. But all for the show, not for the heart. They acted like they were praying to God, but their only real concern was being seen by people. Best thing we have, closest thing we have to that, because there are a lot of people that make big shows about praying today. We don't see that. Not so much. But, you know, it's kind of like politicians. <laughs> you know how politicians are. When the cameras are on, you know, they're hugging and kissing on babies and they're working on factory lines and they're handing out food at the food banks and they're, they're digging shovels, you know, down when there's a hurricane or whatever. They're doing stuff. Or, but when the cameras are off, yeah. No, they're, you don't, they're nowhere to be seen. That's it. We don't make the big show about praying out there in the world, but we do in Christian circles. All of us have been there. Where we're just, you know, making sure that people see that we were praying. That we have our hands folded and our head bowed. That we do that before our meal, you know, so people know that they're praying. And, and we're concerned about the words we say. We want to make sure that we use, that we sound spiritual. 
And then we use a little better vocabulary than we usually use, you know, a little upscale vocabulary so people go, my, aren't they eloquent? And we've all been there. And our focus really isn't on communing and talking to God. It's on what are they thinking about me? That's Jesus' concern here. As you remember last week when Jesus talked about the givers, He said if all their focus is on people seeing us give, being seen and being respected, if that's our focus, He said there's no reward for the giver. And likewise, He says here, the one who prays as the hypocrite to be seen, He says they've received their reward. Your prayer never made it past the ceiling because you weren't talking to God anyway. You were talking to everybody else. He says, don't be like that. Instead, he says, but when you pray, verse 6, when you pray, go into your room and shut your door and pray to your Father who is in secret and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Be genuine in prayer. Don't be like the hypocrites. Instead, pray in secret. Go into your room. Literally, the word there is closet. Some people, be seeing that, they say, well, then I'm supposed to pray in the closet. So, you know, they go home, they find a closet, they move all the stuff out, they pack it up, send it to Goodwill, turn a closet into their prayer closet, because that's what Jesus said to do. They think, this is where I have to go pray. Well, there's nothing wrong with praying in a literal closet, but that's not Jesus' point. His point is simply, don't go and make a show of your praying. When possible, get yourself physically away from distractions, away from others, so that your focus can be on talking to God. Because, just as with our giving last week, here it is with our praying, we should pray to an audience of one. God is the audience. We need to put our focus there, meeting with Him, not on impressing others, not worrying about what they're thinking. Jesus modeled this for us, often going out for personal and private prayer. But He would withdraw Himself, says Luke chapter 5, to desolate places to pray. Now, by the way, Jesus isn't forbidding praying in public. Pastor Aaron didn't sin when he prayed earlier here in public. Nor did I when I prayed in public. He's not forbidding praying in public so that you can't if you're, you know, in the mall or in the baseball game, watching the Cardinals game or whatever, you're down there in the crowd and you, there's something you think I ought to pray about. You don't have to leave Bush Stadium and run out to the parking lot and get in your car and close the, you know, pull shades down or something to pray. You can pray in the midst of a crowd. You can even pray out loud in the midst of a crowd. The point is that we're not doing it to impress others and we are doing it to talk to God. If Pastor Aaron is trying to impress you with his, with his prayer about his eloquence in praying, then yes, he's blown it. <laughs> if instead he's, he's praying to an audience of one and you are joining with him as I joined with him this morning as he was praying to talk to our audience of one. And we all together lift up prayer together. That is not what Jesus is forbidding here. In fact, the Scripture encourages that. We find Jesus Himself praying publicly, blessing the food at the feeding of the 5,000, for example. We find many examples in Scripture of the church praying corporately, praying together. There is value in us praying together as a church, praying together as Christians. We won't take the time to go through. You can read through the Scripture and you'll find time and time again. Church prays together. Believers pray together. It's all a matter of our motive. It's all a matter of our heart. Are we praying to talk to God or impress people? Jesus adds that God rewards prayer in the secret place. Prayer that, in other words, is focused upon Him. He says, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. He hears and answers that kind of prayer. Jesus moves on to the third key for our right praying. 
We find that in verses 7 to 12, and it is that we are to pray meaningfully. Verse 7, And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Don't be like the Gentiles. Don't be like the unbelievers. Don't be like the pagans. Don't be like the people who don't know God. That's, just, that's what he's saying. There are three problems with the way that these people pray. The first problem Jesus points out, he says, is don't be like them in using their empty phrases, is what he says. Empty phrases, mindless prayer, prayer without It has words, but words without meaning, without thought behind them. World religions are full of this kind of prayer. There are the Buddhist prayer wheels. There are uh, mantras, you know, and we, we just say things over and over and over. You know, there are prayer beads that we walk through and we, we use these little things and we pray little mindless rote prayers. There are all kinds of In every religion, from Christianity to Islam to Hinduism to Buddhism, and you name it, there are all these mindless prayers. But they have made their way into the church among those who call themselves followers of Jesus, and he says, don't go there. That's not the way you, my followers, that's not the way that genuine believers talk to God. It's not mindless, empty words. John Bunyan rightly said it, said this. He says, when thou prayest, John Bunyan was the guy that wrote Pilgrim's Progress, by the way. He said, when thou prayest, rather let thy heart be without words than thy words without heart. It's better, in other words, if your, your heart just doesn't have words. You, you know what you want to say, but you can't get the words out. You're trying to tell God, here's how I feel, here's what I need, here's what's going on, and the words just aren't coming out. He says, you're better there than you are having a bunch of words that have no meaning. Why is that? Because the Holy Spirit, the Scripture says, He prays for us in groanings that cannot be uttered. He interprets those all those things that are in our heart that we're trying to tell God, and He helps interpret those. The point is that prayer is not without meaning, it's not without purpose, it's not without mind. In fact, it is driven by our mind and it's driven by communication because prayer is not about just trying to get a bunch of stuff out there that hopefully we're going to hit the right buttons with God. Prayer is talking with God. Along with that, Jesus says they heap up these empty phrases. It's not enough that they're just empty phrases. He says you heap them up. They're just, there's a bunch of them. It's many words. And so they mistakenly say, if I just say this over and over and over and over and a bunch and a bunch and a bunch, maybe if we just say it, you know, 10,001 times, it's going to finally get through. God's going to hear us. People apparently think that God is a vending machine. That if we say the right things enough in the right way enough times that we that pushes the right button and God gives us what we want. Jesus is saying that's not how we talk to God and it's not what praying is. You know, one of the great ironies and as well one of the great tragedies in Christendom is that Jesus has just said here, Don't pray like that. Don't pray like all those people out there. Don't use empty words that are just repeated a whole bunch, a whole bunch of empty words. And the very thing that follows this is the Lord's Prayer, which is the very words that most Christians around the world pray emptily and mindlessly and repeat over and over. We get in a jam. We need to pray. What are we going to pray? I don't know. Let's see here. The only prayer I know. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done. on this is Give us the day our daily bread and forgive us. And we just, we're going to, we start over again. We go over again. We go over again. You know people that do that? Have you seen that happen time and time again? And Jesus says, folks, that's not praying. But that's the great irony and the great tragedy. Right after Jesus says, don't pray like that, they take His very next words and turn it into that. 
And that's why Jesus has to give us schooling here about how to pray right. Because in all of these acts of righteousness, last week, this week, and next week, there are things that are good and right to do, but in our sinfulness, we just take good and right things and we mess them all up. So it does good for us to come back this morning and go back to class and hear from teacher Jesus, how do we pray rightly? We talk to God. See, and here is is the problem. The problem is they're using all these empty phrases, these mindless phrases, and they're heaping them up and piling up these many words, doing that because they're desperately trying to somehow get God's attention. And the problem is that they don't know God. They don't know God. And Jesus says, don't be like Him. Look there again at verse 8. Because your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Don't pray like that because you know God. You have a relationship with Him. He's your Father. Your Father cares about you. He knows you. And He knows your needs before you ever ask. Which makes some people go, well, then why do we ask if God already knows? Well, because... God knows you, and He loves you. And like a good dad, He's just sitting there waiting because He wants you. <laughs> not your prayer request. I mean, not just, you know, not just... He's waiting for you to come ask because He wants to hear from you. And again, most of the time, the only time we come is when we have need. shouldn't be that way. We should be talking to Him all the time. We pray to a Father who desires relationship and fellowship with us. So Jesus says, we pray differently. We come to commune, to talk with God. Don't be like the pagans. Instead, Jesus says, pray like this, verse 9. And then He gives us what we commonly call the Lord's Prayer. It's not the prayer that Jesus prayed It's a prayer He taught us to pray. But it's not the prayer that He taught us to pray by rote or by memory, but it's a prayer that He gives as an example. Pray like this. He doesn't say pray this. He says pray in this manner. Pray like this. It's a model prayer. It's to serve as a a teaching tool, an example. What does a good prayer look like, we might ask? Well, that's what the Lord's Prayer is designed to teach us. Five things in this prayer that ought to characterize our prayer life. They ought to be part of our prayers. Five things in this prayer. And I'm just going to jump through these very quickly. This deserves a lot of time. Matter of fact, just two years ago, uh, we spent seven Sunday mornings unpacking these verses. And so I'm not going to do all that this morning or we'll be here till Sunday night church, which, by the way, we used to have. And we could just stay here all afternoon. Sometimes they did that in the old days. Sometimes they still do that in the Philippines and India and other places. But we won't do that because you're Americans. And I'm Americans. <laughs> I can't talk that long and I like to eat. And so we're just, I'm just going to say this. If you want to dig deeper in this, I invite you to go to our website. And uh, you can go to sermons and you can find the sermon series when you pray. And there's seven sermons that will help you with this, give you more, more depth. So we're just going to quickly run through this. Pray like this, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. First thing that should be in our prayer, there is worship. We honor God, honor God for who he is. He is our Father. He is also in heaven. He is the, the holy sovereign of the universe. And so the prayer request is, hallowed be your name. May your name be exalted. May your name be revered. May your name be honored for how great and how awesome you are. First part of our prayer should be worship. May God receive the honor He deserves. Verse 10, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. The second thing we need in our prayers, excuse me, is we need submission to submit ourselves before God. It's God, your kingdom come, 
Your will be done. I want what you want. I want your kingdom, not mine. Most of the time we're praying about our kingdom. God, I want a bigger house. I want a newer car. I want, uh, you know, I want better food. I want this. I want that. And we think about our kingdom instead of God. What do you want? You are the sovereign of the universe. What do you want and how can I help? That's really what Jesus is praying, asking us to pray for here. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Submission. Thirdly, verse 11, give us this day our daily bread. Fact is, we have needs. We need food to survive. We need some clothing when it's cold and, and rainy and, you know, we need clothes. We need shelter. We need some things. It's fair to pray for our needs. As some said, our needs, not our greeds, but that's another story. We need provision, so we pray for provision. Fourthly, and forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors. We need grace. We are sinners. We need God's forgiveness. We'd be continually asking Him for forgiveness. Verse 13, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. We need protection. It's a dangerous world out there. Have you noticed? There are crooks. There are thieves. There are thugs. Carjackers. There are spiders and snakes and all kinds of things. It's a dangerous world. There's COVID. There's diseases. And so we need protection. Right? Except for the fact that, and that's all true, but that's not what Jesus means at all. It's not His point. Notice what he says. Jesus prays for protection, but he prays for our real threat. Lead us not into temptation. The real threat that you and I have is that we have a propensity to sin. We have a propensity to do what is wrong. We also have an enemy who desires to get us to do what is wrong, desires to ensnare us, to trap us, to trick us, to trap us up, and to ruin us. In a train wreck of sin. As Jesus' followers, we should want to follow Him and live holy and right lives. And Jesus says our greatest need for protection is not about... We don't need protection from COVID. Our greatest need for protection is not from criminals. It's not from persecutors. It's not from those things. It doesn't say it's wrong to pray for those things, but that's 99% of our prayers is asking God to protect us from the things that we really don't need to be protected from. The great thing we need protection from is sin. This marvelous prayer provides us with five essentials that we need if we're going to have meaningful prayer. Worship, submission, provision, forgiveness, and spiritual protection. There you go. What does a good prayer look like? Pray, pray, pray genuinely, pray meaningfully. Lastly, one more key to praying rightly. It's in verses 14 and 15. If we go back in the Lord's Prayer, the next to the last request, verse 12, forgive us our debts, or for some of you, forgive us our trespasses, depending on which side of the fence that dispute you, you're on. As we forgive our debtors or those who trespassed against us. Or if we just put it in more modern things, forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sinned against us. See, it's easy to say that and realize we need forgiveness and easy to miss the second half of that little prayer request where what we just prayed is that God will forgive us in the same measure as which we have forgiven others. As Augustine says, it's a terrible request. <laughs> Brings terror when I realize if God answers that, that I get forgiveness in the same measure as I gave forgiveness. And just in case we miss that point, here in verses 14 and 15, look what Jesus said. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Those are scary words. So, Pastor, does that mean that we somehow earn heaven and 
forgiveness for our sins in terms of eternity. And we earn eternal life by forgiving others. Or is it saying as well in some way that if I don't forgive others that I can lose my salvation, my forgiveness from sin, my eternal life? Is that what Jesus is saying? Because it sounds like that's what Jesus is saying. And you will find many people who believe that's exactly what this means. And we're ones who believe Jesus means what he says. So how do we put that together? Well, that's worth the whole sermon, but I'm just going to give you a short answer, okay? The short answer is simply this. Remember, we go back to the beginning of this sermon. Who is Jesus talking to? I heard somebody whisper it, his disciples. It's okay to talk in church when the pastor asks, okay? Even if not, if, you, if you're saying, yo, go on, or something, you know, I'm, I'm good with that. <laughs> I could use that once in a while, quite frankly. <laughs> Some of you are going, no, but it's time to quit. And it is time to quit. Look at that. <laughs> Cut it short. <laughs> okay, here's the thing. Very, very quickly. It's addressed to disciples. It's to people who are following Jesus. This sermon is addressed to people who are already saved. This isn't an evangelistic sermon. How to get saved is people who are already saved. In case we miss that or aren't sure, he says again here, when he says, in this prayer, this model prayer, he says, pray this, our Father... God is not the father of the whole world. He's the father of those who, John chapter 1, verse 12, is the father of those who have received Jesus, who have believed in his name. This is the people who are already saved, whose sins are forgiven in terms of the eternal judgment. Okay, that's not the issue here. The issue here, this is family. And we all understand how it works in family. In family, kids, you can offend your mom and dad. You can disrespect them. You can break their rules. You can hurt them. You can break their hearts. Moms and dads, our kids do that, don't they? Do they ever stop being our kids? The answer is no. You're our kid for life. That is how it is here, and this is what the point is. Jesus is talking to children of the Heavenly Father, those who have been, who have been saved by faith in Jesus Christ. We are God's children. The forgiveness here is not talking about heaven and hell. It's not talking about eternal forgiveness. It's talking about family forgiveness. It's talking about relationship. You see, when my kids offended me, when they, when they disrespected me, relationship was hindered. Fellowship was hindered. Dinners were uncomfortable. <laughs> okay, you've been there? <laughs> Car rides are kind of... <laughs> because the fellowship isn't there. We need to forgive. So it is in God's family here. When we refuse to confront the sin of unforgiveness in our life, fellowship with our Father is hindered. We are still God's child. We're still going to heaven, but we cannot expect to experience the joy and the blessing and the fellowship and the intimacy and the power that is ours available to us in relationship with God. That's the point. Being unforgiving to others is a sin because there is nothing that others have done to us that is greater than what we have done to God. And God has wiped our slate clean. He has forgiven us totally and completely of all of those things in terms of eternity. And once we've received His grace, we've come to understand that He doesn't hold that against us. It is inconceivable that we would not then turn around and give that grace to others. Jesus told whole parables about this. This is not a new thing. That's why earlier in this, in the Sermon on the Mount, in the Beatitudes, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. You're getting mercy, you should give it. It's why Jesus said at the end of chapter 5 that we are to love our enemies, to pray for those who persecute us. It's because as those who have relationship with God, as our Father, we are to be those who give relationship to others. Otherwise, it interferes in our relationship, our fellowship with God. 
It's all through the Scripture. I just end with a couple of things. We're to have a forgiving heart is that fourth key. Just a couple of verses to end with. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. One more. Colossians 3. Bear with each other and forgive whatever grievances you may have against one another. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. There we have it. See, if if we want to pray rightly, if we want to be folks who have a prayer life that God grades highly, if we want to have a prayer life that is full of intimate fellowship with God, a prayer life that is effective, as James says, the prayer of a righteous man or woman is powerful and effective. Here's really the four things. We need to, first of all, pray. And we need to pray genuinely. We need to pray meaningfully. And we need to have a forgiving heart. Father, we needed this. Because reality is, I venture to say, not a one of us graded ourselves highly as great prayers. We all have room to grow. So, Father, I pray we would. These words are wonderful words. This is not here to guilt us, but rather Jesus is calling for us because He wants us to experience the joy that there is in being people who walk, who live in fellowship with God. People who get to know Him. People who understand His purpose in our life. People understand and and experience His power in our life. It only comes through prayer. So may we be those who pray, those who pray genuinely, who pray meaningfully, and who have your heart of forgiveness towards those who, who have hurt us. Father, may we here, this group of believers here, this church, may we be people who are prayers. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.